0: Thank you for joining us for this expert perspectives program. In this program module, we will be discussing a group of diseases called the GM2 gangliosidosis. Specifically with this module, we will focus on the classic presentation of these diseases at the time of diagnosis and their phenotype. There are currently four recognized phenotypes for GM2 gangliosidosis conditions. The infantile phenotype the late infantile phenotype, the juvenile phenotype, the late onset or adult phenotype. These four phenotypes can be distinguished most readily by simply the different ages of symptom presentation that in turn result in the patient or the patient's caregiver or clinician beginning a process to seek a diagnosis. It is important to understand that in patients with a GM2 gangliosidosis condition, the progressive disease process is underway and ongoing all the time, even before the patient is born, even if prominent symptoms are not apparent. But often at the time of birth, it is is not apparent that the child has the condition. In most cases, there is no screening to learn if the newborn has a gangliosidosis condition, and the symptoms of the condition are not yet clearly visible. Thus, the child most often is thought to be perfectly healthy at birth. The age at which the symptoms of the disease become clearly apparent, again, varies with phenotype, and the infantile phenotype has the most severe and earliest presentation of symptomatology. It is also important to recognize that the phenotypes of rare diseases in general become increasingly better defined if treatments become available for the disease. And they also become better defined if newborn screening programs are available so that this enriches our our natural history data banks that we have, the knowledge we have about the diseases in the, in the future, should effective treatments for Sandhoff disease and Tay-Sachs disease become available and should newborn screening even become available, we should anticipate to learn more about the distinguishing phenotypes of these diseases. So here, the, these data presented here are showing the median age of diagnosis and the median age of the first symptom onset in the infantile phenotype. And what's really important here to note that at this time, the patient's symptom onset is usually significantly earlier than the actual diagnosis. So there's a delay in diagnosis. Part of this is because it is a rare disease and the clinicians are not really sure where to look. But in most cases, with the infantile phenotype, for example, the first symptoms are always noted by six months of age, if not slightly earlier. And the median age of diagnosis at this time is approximately 15 months. Similarly, in the juvenile phenotype, the symptom onset is usually between 14 and 20 months of age, with the first symptom showing up approximately, from a median statistical point of view, 16 months of age. But the age of diagnosis is later at 22 months. And this is for the late infantile GM2 gangliosidosis, For the juvenile GM2 gangliosidosis, the median age of onset is first noted, approximately 36 months of age, and a significant delay until the actual diagnosis is made at 86 months of age. So what are the initial symptoms that we see in these diseases? Well, with the infantile phenotype, the initial symptoms, again, occurring right around six months of age in most patients, um, if not earlier. The most prominent symptom is hypotonia with weakness. Oftentimes, the child, the child is not able to hold his or her head up independently. They're not able to sit independently. Some other symptoms that may develop or may be present early on are an excessive startle reaction. And there is always a global development, development delay that is noted inevitably. Some patients may have a cherry red spot noted on an ophthalmologic exam. Now, now a cherry red spot is, it it does require an ophthalmologic exam. And this exam may be ordered if the clinician suspects the child has a lysosomal disease that might have this cherry red spot. The exam may also be ordered if the child is um, struggling with um, a lazy eye or if there's abnormal eye movements, and the cherry red spot is, is uh, becomes visible because of ganglioside accumulation in the tissue around the fovea of the eye and around the macula. And the macula itself is, it does not have cells and does not accumulate ganglioside. So when this is imaged or, or viewed under exam, it looks like a uh, more prominent red spot on the back, on the retina. It is important to note that the cherry red spot may not be present at birth, but it may develop later in childhood. So it's not a yes or no question, does the child have a cherry red spot? It's more, have they developed one? Um, should we check again and see if they've developed one at a later time if, if it initially does not show up on exam? Pediatric developmental milestones are a standard way to that that general practice pediatricians evaluate how a child is developing. And what we have found through our natural history study at the University of Minnesota is, in addition to the the validated and more complicated neurodevelopmental testing that can be done for children with the gangliosidosis condition, that the that the pediatric milestones that are used in all pediatricians' clinics can actually be a signal to point the pediatrician to possibly um, checking to see if the child might have Tay-Sachs disease or Sandhoff disease or another uh, severe n- another disease that involves similar neurological impairment. And this chart shows standard pediatric milestones from age two months to, six, to 60 months or five years of age. But um, these, these parameters can be used actually to evaluate um, children and, and possibly send them on for further screening. For example, uh, can the patient sit independently? And we just wanna show here, this is a, a child with infantile tay And when you ask the parents, can the patient sit independently, they were very happy to say yes he can and they 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 sent this picture and this is actually the child at 10 months of age most of the children i've seen with infantile Tay-Sachs, even at 6 months of age or 7 months of age cannot sit independently but what is actually happening here in this picture and this is important for for clinicians to understand is this child is is not sitting independently he is using what is called a tripod position to support himself and why this might be important is when these pediatric milestones are being used to, develop, to examine children and possibly as a as a signal that there's a neurological disease occurring, um, when the question is asked, it, the, the parent or caregiver needs to properly understand the question and the clinician needs to make sure that, that they do and, and also do an actual physical exam to confirm that. The juvenile phenotype of GM2 gangliosidosis, again, we're talking Tay-Sachs disease and Sandhoff disease, has a diagnostic odyssey that is different than the infantile. The most prominent symptoms that, that bring these children in to clinic and for which a diagnosis diagnostic journey starts, trying to find out is there is there something severely, uh, a, a disease associated with this child's symptoms that we need to diagnose and treat. What starts that journey almost always involves two things that are in common, changes in the ability to emulate and changes in speech. Now, other things can be going on with the child. And if you talk to the parents of a child with a juvenile, with a, a child with Tay-Sachs or Sandoff disease who has the juvenile phenotype, they will say, Yes, my child was very unique and they had all these other things. But one commonality that we have found in the natural history studies, which will be very helpful for um, diagnosis as, as well as clinical trial outcome um, parameters that need to be looked at, are all the children with the juvenile disease experience a change in emulation and a change in speech just prior to being diagnosed or prior to starting that, that search for diagnosis. In the adult onset or late onset disease, the most common presenting symptoms often also, also involve ambulation and sometimes speech, but most often ambulation, and it's most often associated with weakness when the, when the patient is climbing stairs or getting up from a sitting position. And this is sometimes referred to as a limb girdle weakness. They, they may report to clinic and say, uh, I'm getting clumsier. For some reason I'm having falls and I've never fallen before and I'm having frequent falls. On rare occasions these patients may have some psychological onset of new psychological conditions and these have actually been found in some cases to most likely be associated with the the adult onset Tay-Sachs disease. So the disease in the adults, these changes in ambulation and the changes in speech. It is it is understood this time that there is a loss of anterior horn cell motor neurons that is affecting the the ability to to ambulate. It's also causing um, the the knees to lock when in extension, and this is at least partly an explanation for the the increased falls and the frequent falls. And cerebellar atrophy has um, been associated with the. The stuttering and explosive speech and changes in speech quality and and difficulty in speaking that these these patients have. They do have a kind of a unique pattern of speaking that does develop over time and this can be recognized, but initially they may just be uh, talking a little more slowly and having a little more slower stuttering speech. The disease progression in the adult patients varies, but again, as stated earlier, they will all have progressive dif- difficulties with ambulation and balance. Oftentimes, they develop tremors, dysotonias, acroparesthesias. Some patients suffer from anxiety, depression, and again, some more, even more uh, um, severe psychological illnesses, such as bipolar disease. It is common for these patients to have osteopenia or osteoporosis. This is like likely associated with, at least in part, the the decrease in their ability to ha- to exercise with a weight bearing exercise type um, movements and am- in their ambulation. So, I here we have summarized what we just talked about, kind of the differentiation between infantile, juvenile and late onset on the right of this table and some of the cellular pathology that is involved and what is going on at a molecular level. So what about supportive care? There currently is no licensed therapy for these diseases, but most of these patients. um, Undergo a lot of supportive care, and that does vary a bit from, from what country they live in, from country to country. Here we have a case of a patient with infantile Tay-Sachs disease. At six months of age, he had delayed development and profound hypotonia. By one year of age, he had progressive loss of fine and gross motor skills. By 18 months of age, he had a severe seizure disorder that, that began, and he was also experiencing excessive respiratory and salivary secretions that were resulting in recurrent aspiration pneumonias. He had swallowing difficulties that became more and more difficult. A feeding tube had to be placed. By the third year of life, he had severe vision impairment. It was, he was most likely blind. It was a little bit unclear, but due to numerous, um, he went under underwent numerous ophthalmo, ophthalmologic exams, and it appeared that he might have a little vision, but was primarily considered legally blind. He had urinary retention. He died at four and a half years of age, secondary to aspiration pneumonia. In this second case, this is a child with juvenile Tay Sachs. She suffered from balance difficulties, muscle weakness at the early stages of her disease, worsening loss of fine and gross motor skills, loss of walking ability, hypotonia, dysphagia, dysarthria, dysphagia, dysphagia, swallowing difficulties, and eventually seizures and excessive respiratory and salivary secretions, again, leading to aspiration pneumonias. So in these cases, it it is clear that these children need a lot of supportive care. So for example, they will receive anti-seizure medications. For For the secretions, they will oftentimes have manual chest percussion therapy, but in some cases, a, an ex, a more expensive device, if their insurance will pay for it, is a high-frequency chest wall oscillation device that is also used by patients with cystic fibrosis and helps to clear secretion and mucus out of the lungs, and they would do that for 20 minutes twice a day. They might need medications to control painful muscle spasms. They will have a feeding tube placed, or they have the option to have a feeding tube placed. And these children often suffer from chronic constipation and and oftentimes a neurogenic bladder that involves medications and therapies. Important key concepts from this talk are that the biochemical and mutation analysis must be done to differentiate differentiate Tay-Sachs disease from Sandhoff disease. Another important concept here which is that with what we currently have in terms of the, knowledges about, the knowledge that we have about these diseases, the best way to differentiate the phenotypes at this time is to look at when the first prominent symptoms that began to cause concern about the patient's health became apparent. And this, it sounds simple, but it actually works quite well in most cases for classifying the patient or the individual as having the infantile phenotype, late infantile phenotype, juvenile phenotype, or the late onset.